Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 31 of the podcast in which we will discuss chapter 9 of Prince Caspian titled What Lucy Saw. And the interesting thing about that title for this chapter is that Lucy will end up seeing two things. Uh, The primary thing, of course, being the vision of Aslan that she has uh, up in the woods that it seems that she is the only one in the company that can see him which becomes a a major dilemma where Peter and Susan and Edmund and Trumpkin don't see Aslan. Uh, But there's another vision of beauty and uh, glory and hope that Lucy has uh, before that. And so really this is a chapter of two things that Lucy sees and we'll discuss both of them. Uh, This chapter comes uh, after the last one where uh, Trumpkin learns the hard way to trust the authority and sovereignty of Uh, these former kings and queens of old, of the golden age of Narnia. And now they have decided to row up the, up Glasswater to meet Caspian and uh, the rest of the Narnians over at Aslan's How at the stone table. So this chapter begins with their arduous journey as they are rowing and uh, striving to make their way, to find their way to Caspian and the rest. And the chapter opens with another indication from Lewis uh, of the reality of the mission. Uh, often in our modern conceptions of fantasy or of fairy tale, we can sometimes find it to be too um, escapist or too sentimental or too romantic, perhaps in the negative sense, that a, uh, a fantasy or a fairy tale world is one that doesn't take into account the hardships and the struggles and the sufferings of quote unquote real life. Uh, But here Lewis uh, takes pains to include detail that reminds us that the the experiences that our characters are going through are not always uh, sunshine and rainbows, that they grow tired, they are hungry, they suffer the concerns and anxieties of whether or not they'll make it in time to save Caspian, whether or not they are equipped for the task at hand, whether or not they're even headed in the right direction. Um, The end of the opening paragraph really uh, puts it directly, the opening of chapter 9. Lewis says, And as they all grew more tired, their spirits fell. Up till now the children had only been thinking of how to get to Caspian. Now they wondered what they would do when they found him, and how a handful of dwarfs and woodland creatures could defeat an army of grown-up humans. And so Lewis didn't have to include that. He could have uh, written... Uh, a charming tale where good conquers evil and everything wins out in the end and the sun comes after the darkness, that um, the morning dawns and everything is beautiful and lovely again with no real indication of ache or pain or hardship. Um, But he directly ties their physical strain and their emotional fear and concern with a falling of their spirits. And as they all grew more tired, their spirits fell that there is a real fear and sorrow and sense of concern and despair that can befall even the most, um, even the strongest of believers. I'm thinking of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where um, Christian makes his way through many trials and many difficulties to the celestial city and doesn't do so perfectly. Uh, That he is often caught into temptations and snares in which he 
must rely on the help of faithful and hopeful. He must rely on the help of friends. He must uh, repent of a, a fearful heart or of a, a temptation that he has succumbed to. And the pilgrimage here for these characters toward Prince Caspian, toward the conclusion of the novel is no different. And I would argue the same is different for us in our spiritual pilgrimage, in our great journey of the soul toward the city of God, that we will encounter hardship. Uh, Jesus promised that to us in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. But he also promised uh, his overcoming the world. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. So while we, along with Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy and Trumpkin, ought to maintain this constant vigilant hope for uh, the glorious outcome that we need to place our trust in the Savior, that trust will be tested. That trust will be put through the fire of, of tribulation and suffering. And the valley of the shadow of death is a valley that we all must walk. But though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for God is with us. And so that is the concern here for these characters is that they, and as we'll discover with Lucy's vision at the end, that they are not alone, that Aslan indeed is watching over them, perhaps not in a way that they could have expected or anticipated, but that he is certainly aware and he is along their journey. But that doesn't mean that they are exempt from the difficulties of the journey, that they must still travel the road that is prepared for them. Uh, whether it is a high road or a low road. They fall asleep, uh, exhausted, of course, from their journey. They sit down to eat, uh, yet again, a meal of apples. And they're sitting in this sort of dead uh, experience of exhaustion. And Lucy, who was the less, less tired of the bunch, finds it hard to fall asleep. And she wakes up and Lewis describes this vision of holiness, this rather transcendent uh, encounter Lucy has with the deep magic of Narnia that uh, occurs in the middle of the night. And the way that he unpacks this description, I think, is monumental as the first of the two visions that Lucy has in this chapter, uh, that Lucy will be drawn uh, out of her out of her place of, of rest, that she's not falling asleep. She'll be drawn to a wakeful state, but also this dreamy state where she seems to be in this liminal state between the waking world and the dreaming world. And in this moment, Lewis will describe this experience for Lucy that I believe is laden with uh, the sacred. It's laden with this spiritual richness that it becomes a meaningful prelude to the second vision that Lucy has where she sees Aslan face to face, even though she sees him alone. She's the only one that sees him. I think she's being prepared for that vision. And the conviction she has with the certainty of the vision and the certainty of following Aslan and trusting him, I think she's equipped with that confidence in this first vision where the uh, what Lewis says, the thrill of memory uh, awakens her to something that she half remembers but half forgot. And this, this beautiful uh, path that she has to walk between faith in the real world, between um, memory and hope, between the dream and the waking life. So I just want to unpack how Lewis describes this. It's um, a, a vision of the sacramental, a vision of sacredness. What uh, I heard Heidi White 
uh, in a different podcast talk about sacramental ontology, which just uh, in her definition means that everything in reality is uh, participating in the sacred, that every space is a sacred space. And there can be the sacred and there can be the desecrated, but there's no such thing as an unsacred place or an unholy place. You either have the holy or the uh, degraded, but you don't have anything like an unholy. And Lewis is about to walk into an encounter with the holy, the sacred, as she sees Narnia uh, in all of its grandeur. So just a few paragraphs in, Lewis describes this waking moment for her. He says this, Through a gap in the bracken and branches, she could just see a patch of water in the creek and the sky above it. Then, with a thrill of memory, she saw again, after all those years, the bright Narnian stars. She had once known them better than the stars of our own world, because as a queen in Narnia, she had gone to bed much later than as a child in England. Instead of getting drowsier, she was getting more awake with an odd nighttime dreamish kind of wakefulness. The creek was growing brighter. She knew now that the moon was on it, though she couldn't see the moon. And now she began to feel that the whole forest was coming awake like herself. Hardly knowing why she did it, she got up quickly and walked a little distance away from their bivouac. So I believe what's happening here is she's being uh, awakened to, the, by the thrill of memory, Lewis says, a nostalgia, a seeing again and pining again for that which first drew her into this uh, lovely acceptance of the magic of Narnia, that she's submitting again to the enchantment of this great world, that she is being humbled by the thrill of memory which is, I think, part of what nostalgia is for. And it can awaken within us a pain. Nostalgia is a painful aching. It's a longing for what once was and is no longer, where she's being awakened to this pain of exile, where the the rain that she had in Narnia, all those, uh, for her just a year ago, but for Narnia, all those many years ago, She's being reminded that she is in exile from that memory, that she no longer is that great Queen Lucy of that age, that she is now in a different spot. And she can recall and, and pine for that awakened memory. But that awakened memory is not merely a painful memory. It is a nostalgia that is tied directly to the promise of homecoming, the promise of return, the return to Narnia is the subtitle of this whole novel, that there is a way of mourning the loss of a memory or of a bygone age, just as much as you and I mourn the loss of Eden every single day of our lives, that you and I are exiles, that we were not meant for this, that we were meant for the paradise of Eden. We were meant to have our duty and our delight married in our uh, creatureliness, serving the Lord gladly as we walked with him in the cool of the day. So we mourn that because we we are removed from that. But that nostalgia can also awaken a thrill to remember that we will yet return, that we will um, be reconciled to Christ and his kingdom one day 
when he returns to earth and sets up his forever kingdom uh, and we shall reign forever and ever with him, that there is a aching and a hope tied in this same feeling. And as Lucy encounters it's this feeling, she's getting more awake. This experience for her doesn't dull her senses, but they sharpen her senses. Lewis says she's not getting drowsier, but getting more awake with an odd nighttime dreamish wakefulness. It's a middle ground between the pain of exile and the promise of homecoming, between the dreaming world and the waking world. But that's the world in which you and I walk, that we mourn the loss of Eden, but we also await the return of Christ. And so she, in that hopeful thrill of this memory of these Narnian stars, it brightens, it awakens, it doesn't deaden or dull the senses. The creek grows brighter. The whole forest was coming awake like herself. And then the key phrase, hardly knowing why she did it, she got up quickly and walked a little distance. There's a beauty to this experience where Lucy is overcome by the enchantment of the memory, by the enchantment of the vision. And that's what holiness does to us. That's what a vision of the sacred and a, and a participation with the sacred does. We don't, we don't uh, understand it fully. We don't know why we do what we do. We don't uh, have a perfect um, assessment of, of what our faith believes. It is faith that we are trusting the Holy Spirit's guidance, that we can't pin it down into a styrofoam board and label it like we might want to do in a some elementary uh, science experiment. We can't uh, approach the throne of God with this exactitude as a peer, that we approach humbly. We approach as creatures, finite, limited creatures, hardly knowing what we're doing, and yet drawn uh, irresistibly all the same. The same uh, sort of scene will occur in the silver chair where Jill uh, is thirsting for water and she approaches a stream, but Aslan stands between her and the stream. Um, there's a line there that Lewis says where uh, Jill, it says her mind suddenly made itself up. That there's this hardly knowing why I'm doing it, but yet I'm trusting the experience. I'm, I'm participating and walking into the experience all the same. This is lovely, said Lucy to herself. It was cool and fresh. Delicious smells were floating everywhere. It was a little lighter ahead. She went towards the light and came to a place where there were fewer trees and whole patches of, or pools of moonlight. But the moonlight and the shadows so mixed that you could hardly be sure where anything was or what it was. Lucy's eyes began to grow accustomed to the light and she saw the trees that were nearest her more distinctly. A great longing for the old days when the trees could talk in Narnia came over her. So Lewis is continuing to describe this experience of Lucy's where this she's being led by this great longing, but it's a, a leading that is coming over her where she's following this thread, hardly knowing why she's doing it that she's just being drawn away from the bivouac, away from the camp, toward this experience with Narnia directly. Narnia as a natural world, Narnia and all of its beauty. And she's discovering this awakened longing within her as she sees the light and as she participates with it. And then she says this, Oh, trees, 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 said Lucy. 
though she had not been intending to speak at all. Oh, trees, wake, wake, wake. Don't you remember it? Don't you remember me? Dryads and hamadryads, come out, come to me. So this repetition of the three, trees, 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 wake, wake, wake. She will repeat that, that triplet with her second vision of Aslan. She'll say, look, look, look. And everybody turns to look and they don't see him, but she sees him. But that repeating of the three words uh, connects this vision with the later vision. And it reminds us of what Aslan says when he creates Narnia, all the way back in The Magician's Nephew, where he awakens the Narnian world. And uh, he tells the trees to speak and to move. And then in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan awakens the statues to life with his breathing, that he commands them to come out of out of death into life, that Lucy here, unbeknownst to her, we have another uh, statement from Lewis that she had not been intending to speak at all. The words just emerge from her. Trees, 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 wake, 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 don't you remember? That she is participating in the magic of the Narnian world without having a command over it. She's not intending to do it. She's not deciding to do it. She's being called into it. And remember how the children got into Narnia the second time in the first place. They were called and they came. That they were called outside. Remember, this bothered Edmund <laughs> to be drawn into the world without your choosing simply because Aslan called. Aslan will tell Lucy that you would not have called me unless I had called you. That there is this calling on us that emerges from the holiness of God. It emerges from the divine and it is suggested to us in these nostalgic visions of paradise that I had a student once uh, in one of her papers coin this phrase of suggestions of paradise, that God gives us suggestions of paradise in and through the natural world. And we are to pay attention to those suggestions. Open our eyes, come awake, walk into the light, participate in the holiness of God through a submission and a humility and a, uh, a posture of grace to the enchantment of the story of God. And Lucy does that. And the moment comes and then right on the cusp of understanding, Lewis says that the moment passed. Lucy felt that, it, that at any moment she would begin to understand what the trees were trying to say, but the moment did not come. Their rustling died away. And so this is a reminder of what Lewis talks about in Surprised by Joy, where these stabs of joy, these piercings of the ache and the longing for glory, that in this world, they come only for a moment. And then when we try to understand that moment or chronicle that moment or record that moment down, they're gone. Um, they, they pierce the heart and they remind us of the not yet, of the hope that we have, the nostalgia we have for the glory that is in our rear view, but also the hope that we have for the glory that will return again. Um, Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. And so Lucy sees through a glass darkly, but then she will see face to face. And in these two visions, the first vision, she sees the sacred magic of Narnia darkly. She sees it as a glimpse. 
But later in the chapter, in the second vision, she will see Aslan face to face. And she acts on that vision. Aslan has commanded all of her loyalties. She is convicted of Aslan's presence. In the uh, At the end of the chapter, when Susan says that, oh, well, what is it that you think you saw, uh, Lucy? Lucy rebukes Susan and says, don't talk like a grown-up. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. And so in this second vision, Lucy has been prepared for the face-to-face encounter with Aslan and is willing to defend it against her siblings all the way. She loses out in the end. Um, Peter decides to go down the gorge instead of up, and she cries bitterly at the very end of the chapter. But we can see how the first vision of grace and of the transcendent beauty of Aslan, of God, through the speaking of the natural world, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars pour forth speech. And if you and I pay attention to the language of God through these suggestions of paradise in the natural world, I believe we are being prepared, just like Lucy, for the face-to-face vision of God that will come one day um, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, as Hamlet says, when we have finally come to die that all of the preparation and rehearsal of this life has prepared us to see not through a glass darkly, but to see face to face. And so this first vision is one where Lucy has glimpses, stabs of longing, and then she sees Aslan face to face later. Maybe that is the reason she's able to see Aslan and the others aren't, is that she was awakened and attuned to the presence of the magical and the lyrical all around her, speaking to her, and she was responding to it. Trees, wake, don't you remember it? Don't you remember me? With the thrill of memory. Right after this experience, everybody awakens, and Lewis's diction takes a dramatic turn, where now everything is described as cold and cheerless, gray twilight, and everything, quote, damp and dirty. Uh, The trees were thick and they could see no more than a few yards in any direction. And Susan and Peter and Edmund describe how they don't know where they are. They can't remember how to get to uh, the rush, this river that they're trying to find. Um, And it's uh, an interesting contrast with what we saw with Lucy in The Waking Dream. That there's a confusion now that contrasts with the transcendent clarity of Lucy's experience. As they make their way, uh, they discover a bear uh, that Trumpkin ends up shooting with his arrow that Susan didn't know if it was a Narnian talking bear or a dumb bear. Uh, Trumpkin shoots it and they end up uh, skinning it for meat. And there's an interesting statement that uh, Lucy and Susan have about this bear that I want to pause on. Lewis says this, Lucy shuddered and nodded. When they had sat down, she said, such a horrible idea has come into my head, Sue. What's that? Wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world at home, men started going wild inside like the animals here and still looked like men so that you'd never know which were which? Notice Lucy's concern there. Wouldn't it be dreadful if in our world men started going wild inside. Men started being just dumb beasts and still look like men and you couldn't tell which were which. This is a view of Lewis's understanding of the modern man, 
uh, if you've read The Abolition of Man, it's a great, it's, it's a very small book, but a very profound book that Lewis wrote about uh, his concerns with modernity, uh, his concerns with the modern age, particularly with modern education. His concern being that we are making men in our modern age that are merely dumb beasts. They look like men, but they lack the virtuous and the soul and the spiritual disciplines of, of wisdom and courage and of grace. And they are merely uh, products of their modern making, that they are merely creatures that resemble men, but everything that makes them image bearers of God has been neutered or has been hollowed out from the middle. This is what is happening to us. Lewis, in a very famous passage from The Abolition of Man, he describes uh, the modern man this way. He says, quote, In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. So this famous phrase of making men without chests applies to what Lucy is concerned with here with Susan, that suppose men over time simply come to be men without chests. They have no heart. They have no virtue. They have no soul. They are merely um, victims of their instinct, victims of their appetites. They are merely guts, and therefore they're no different than this bear. This is the lie of Darwin, right? That we are all uh, products of blind evolution. We are molecules in motion doing what they do at these temperatures, right? We're just a Ziploc bag of bones and guts doing what we do. Survival of the fittest. And therefore, what do you mean by virtue and morality and, uh, and the soul? These things mean nothing to us because God has been removed from the equation. There's no reason to be holy or just or good. There's no reason to strive after discipline and virtue and sacrifice. It's merely a survival game of natural selection. And so what Lucy's fear is about these, these uh, men who have become wild inside, they have lost their way as um, human beings and have merely come to resemble animals. That's Lewis's prophetic explanation of what has come to be true of us. Um, it, in his commentary on Narnia, Devin Brown uh, mentions um, a couple of quotes from some Lewis scholars that, that speak to this same reality. He says this, Lucy's comment here has raised a number of critical responses. Paul Ford argues, the implication is that this has already happened in our own world, as evidenced by the tendency to reduce the highest aspirations of humanity to material and technological terms. Let me say that again. The tendency to reduce the highest aspirations of humanity to material and technological terms. Gilbert Mylander maintains, Lucy is speculating about an abolition of man. If by relinquishing their inheritance, talking beasts can become dumb beasts without changing their external appearance, it is also possible for a human being to become a trousered ape which is unfortunately the dilemma we have today where men and women have forsaken their duties as 
sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God to cultivate the ground and to glorify him and enjoy him forever, we have substituted and exchanged that purpose and that um, duty to merely that of personal gratification and uh, appetite appeasing and instinct where our lives now become about making money and becoming comfortable that you surround your mansion with creature comforts you do whatever pleases you in the moment and you're the one who gets to define who you are what you are and what is right or wrong that we have forsaken the truth capital t and exchange it for mere truth claims between competing cultures and social groups that we have effectively become dumb beasts and I think it's the task of Lewis's here in these Narnia stories to awaken within the reader a reminder uh, that there is more. There is more to who we are, the kings and queens of Narnia, that we have been called by our creator to a life of glory, a life of imitating him and serving him, not merely appeasing our own selves and uh, following through with this law of the jungle um, where it's eat or be eaten, try to do whatever you can to make yourself happy. So in the final portion of the chapter, as I've uh, anticipated already, Lucy has her second vision, uh, what Lucy saw, the title of the chapter, where she sees Aslan face to face. And she says, look, look, look. Everyone turns to look and she says, the lion, said Lucy, Aslan himself, didn't you see? Her face had changed completely and her eyes shone this reminds me of moses on the mountaintop here where lucy's encounter with aslan tells in her face and in her eyes that there is this this true and deeper reality to the vision of aslan that uh, transcends beyond just a mere vision 